Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. Well, we're getting close to the end of the year holidays, and I hope that you and your family will get together and break bread and enjoy each other's company immensely. And I think that's one of our problems. Our families don't get together like they used to. You know, cause back then we had Big Mama. And sadly enough, it seems that we have buried all the people that used to hold families together. And speaking of families, I have something to say. And I hope I don't offend anybody. But there's a thought that I, me, Bo, have a thing against white people. Well, you could be no farther from the truth. You see, my family is mostly composed of white people. Not that I will go into statistics, but there are more white and biracial people in my family than there are pure black people. If there is such a thing as pure black people, but you know what I'm talking about. All of my grandchildren and great-grandchildren are biracial, except for a couple. I have a biracial son, and I have sons that's married to Caucasian women, and I have sons that are married to black women. So let's not get it twisted. I love my family, the white ones as well as the black ones. But this show is about truth. And in order to tell American history, I have to speak about white as well as black people. Because there would be no African-American history if there were no white people in it. There would be no white history in America if there was no black in it. And I'm here to tell you the truth and to try to tell you the history of this country. And the truth does not give a shit what your opinion is. Because this show may not be perfect, but at least it's not fake. I carry the African spirit and glory wherever I go. I embrace my ancestral heritage with every breath I take. And if you have a problem with that, I am damn sorry, but that is your problem. And right now, we are going to slip into darkness and do what we do. You know, my friends, A lot of people think that the African-Americans just willingly became slaves. A lot of people think that African-Americans did not fight back. You know, the fighting started on the shores of Africa, and it never stopped. We never just handed over our lives with the thought that things would be better when we were put in chains and loaded in the bottom of a ship and sailed across the Atlantic never to see our homelands again. A lot of people think that we just laid down and accepted it. 
But just like we are fighting for our freedom now, we fought for our freedom back then. Oh, we didn't have weapons. We weren't even allowed to ride a horse. But we did have fire. And we did burn fields. And we did destroy tools. Yeah, the master loved us. But he also hated us and were fearful of us because the odds weren't even. It was him and his family and maybe a hundred of us. So fear lived in him and his family as well as it lived in the slave. So there were hundreds and hundreds of rebellions by the slaves during this period in time. And probably there were just as many that were not recorded as they were of those recorded. So for the next couple of stories, I'm going to tell you about some of those rebellions and the way that we fought back. And our first story is about the Stono Rebellion. You see, my friends, the white planters and farmers on the Stono River near Charleston, South Carolina, had a reason for concern in the summer of 1739 because a smallpox epidemic had raged through the area the previous year and yellow fever was spreading. The settlers expected a bumper rice crop of about 35 million pounds for export, but it was hurricane season and they watched the weather closely. And it didn't help that there was conflict with Spain. Britain's imperial rival also caused talk of war to increase the port city. And the settlers were concerned about a recent proclamation from Spanish Florida offering freedom to their runaway slaves. You see, that Spanish proclamation went into effect in 1733, but it was not enforced until the arrival of Florida governor Manuel Montano in 1737. The previous year, 70 slaves from South Carolina had traveled over water and lands as they fled successfully to Florida and freedom. Can you imagine just traveling through the swamp for days just to get to freedom? You see, South Carolina planters generally had large plantations of several hundred acres to raise labor-intensive rice and indigo. And the wealthier ones owned hundreds of African slaves who outnumbered white settlers in the colony. Poorer farmers had small farms and few slaves, but were just as interested in controlling the slave population through a variety of means, including whipping slave patrols, the first police, and a version of Christianity that promoted obedience. You beat me, you rape me, you hang me, and then you ask for forgiveness and obedience. Slaves worked in the colony according to a task system, and they competed their work at their own pace under the watchful eye of an overseer. And they had a fair amount of freedom to determine the means by which they would labor for their masters. 
And this, my friends, is where the blunder comes. You see, the presence of fewer Europeans enabled these Africans and African Americans to shape their own communal culture in the fields and in their quarters during time off for the Sabbath on Sunday. They resisted the slave system by fraying illness, running away for a few days, or breaking farm implements. But violence ultimately controlled slaves and compelled their labor. And meanwhile, slave owners lived in constant fear that their slaves would revolt and kill them because they were greatly outnumbered. And in August 1739, the Colonial Assembly passed a law requiring planters to go to church armed in case of a slave revolt or an escape. But that didn't stop anything, because sometime after midnight on September the 9th, about 20 slaves working as a crew on a drainage ditch decided to escape to freedom in Florida. Many of them were Angolans and were led by an enslaved man named Jimmy. They broke into Hutchinson's general store for arms and gunpowder that he sold. And somehow they were discovered by two white men, Robert Bathurst and Mr. Gibbs. And the slaves killed the men and left their heads on the front steps. There was no turning back now. Heading out into the night without a plan, the armed slaves first came upon the home of a planter named Godfrey. They plundered the house and killed Godfrey and his two children before setting fire to the dwelling. The flames rising, they continued their march southward. And before dawn, they reached Wallace's Tavern, where they drank briefly but hardly and spared the owner because he was known to be kind to his slaves. They proceeded to sack the nearby home of Mr. Lemmy, killing his wife and their child before setting the house on fire. The bold slaves traveled along the road burning six more houses and killing several of the white inhabitants. It didn't make no difference whether they were wealthy planters or poor farmers. Some of the slaves in the plantation hid their masters and even drove off the rebels, either too frightened to join the rebellion or genuinely concerned for their owners. Other slaves, however, joined the rebels, whose ranks grew to 50 or 60. And as the sun started to come up, the rebels boldly marched down the road, waving a banner and beating a drum to signal other slaves to join the rebellion. They even loudly shouted out the word liberty for anyone to hear. Destruction was evident in their wake, with flames and smoke rising high in the sky across the landscape. Just then, Lieutenant Governor William Bull and a small group of white planters, coincidentally riding along the road, spied the formation. Realizing what was happening, Bull and his outnumbered companion wheeled their horses and fled, just narrowly eluding capture and sounding an alarm as they went. 
As they marched for several more miles, the rebels were joined by additional runaways and numbered almost 100. Exhausted from this hell of a journey, they stopped in a field to rest and celebrate their freedom and wait for more of their fellow slaves to join the escape. When suddenly, a group of a dozen or more armed and mounted white planters converged on them from the south with murder intended. But the slaves refused to go without a fight, and they grabbed their muskets and fired a few hastily shots. The planters descended upon the slaves, dismounted, and loosed a devastating volley into their ranks. After the exchange of gunfire, 14 slaves were dead or wounded. In the confusion, about 30 escaped into the countryside. Some of the surviving runaways were executed or questioned and then killed. But the planters allowed others to return to their plantation and await their fate. You see, this was their labor force. Some were killed by their masters. Others were whipped and sent back to the fields. In the coming weeks, patrols roamed the countryside in a fierce manhunt to capture the runaways. Whites even employed some friendly American Indians to track them. About a week later, whites discovered a group of 10 runaways and killed them in a pitched battle. Georgians over the border were on high alert at their forts and plantations, and eventually all the rebels were either killed or returned to slavery. And slaves who had protected their masters during the rebels' march received gifts of money and clothing. What were they going to do with money? Were they going to walk to the store? Were they going to order something from Amazon? In September, the Colonial Assembly met and discussed the events that happened during the Stone Old Slave Revolt. Several revisions were made to the colony's slave code in hope to preventing future revolts. Masters were not to work slaves on the Sabbath. They had to provide slaves with adequate food and clothing and could not murder them. At the same time, the colony tightened restrictions on slaves, banning the sale of alcohol to them, not allowing them drums, and preventing masters from teaching them to read or write. You see, whiteness had learned that we could talk to each other from the beat of a drum. So where did the American Indians learn that? The largest and the most significant slave rebellion in the British North American colonies, the Stono Rebellion, revealed tensions that continued in slave states throughout the next century. Slaves were oppressed by a brutal system 
of forced labor and sometimes violently rebelled. Slave owners, on the other hand, kept a watchful eye and constantly sought ways to keep slaves obedient and accepting their condition. My friends, that is the story of the Stono Rebellion, which I'm sure you probably never heard of because it's not in any of our history books, but it's our history nonetheless. And you see, the oppressor would not be so strong if he did not have accomplices among the oppressed. And it's happening right now. But they don't always have to tell their side of the story because time will. My friends, we all know what that music means. It's time for us to get out of here. But before we go, I want to tell you this. We are free and we are warriors. And we are going to fight for our equality and freedom to the day we die. But just remember this. Until the lion learns how to write, every story will glorify the hunter. Have a great day, my friends. And until next time. It has been my honor. Peace to my ancestors and my elders, for I walk in your strength, legacy, and power today and every day. <laughs>